Welcome to the Ether. Today is Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. Today on the Ether, the Psychedelic Scientist, hosted by Psydelve. Let's take a listen. Yo, what is good, Manash? Hey, Maddie, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. How's your Tuesday going? Yeah, good. Busy, but going well. That's good. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pass around this space a little bit, get a, a few more people in here, and then uh yeah, dude, we can start it off. So I mean, first yeah. of all, thank you for coming. I know you have a busy schedule and uh, yeah, dude, I got some cool questions and I know some people from the community had some interesting questions too. Ones that I never really even thought of. Um, okay. Fun. To be honest with you. So like, it, it's going to be quite, quite interesting. Cause they're a little bit like, I know fun girl who's in here right now has a question about yawning. And so like, you know how you yawn during like a psychedelic trip, how it becomes like more frequent, but I'll let, I'll let her ask you that. Give me like uh, three minutes here to pass this space around and some backroom chats and then we'll get started on it. Yeah, for sure, man. No rush whenever you're ready. And Manesh, well, while I'm doing this, if you want to, if you want to just introduce yourself and give a little bit of a background on yourself, and then by the time you're done doing that, I'll have passed this all around in the backroom stuff and then we can just jump right into it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, so hey everyone who's here so far, if you don't know me, um, I am, uh, my name is Manesh, I'm just finishing up my PhD in neuroscience. <clears throat> I do brain imaging research related to how psychedelic drugs work in the brain. Um, and I collaborate with a lot of leading researchers that have published a bunch of papers on the topic. Just kind of been understanding the brain mechanisms that through which psychedelics, psychedelics give rise to the, the profound reality-altering experiences that they do, and then also how we can better understand how they can be used for therapy and mental health benefits. And so right now I'm finishing my PhD, then after that I head to San Francisco to work at the University of California, San Francisco, with leading psychedelic researcher Robin Carhart-Harris, where I'll be doing some more psychedelic neuroscience research um, and I'll be involved with a couple of pretty large, pretty massive studies down there on psilocybin, um, including on the effect of set and setting on psilocybin's effects on the brain and on mental health outcomes, as well as how we can understand different kind of substates within the psychedelic experience that, that we can map onto the brain. And in addition to that kind of stuff I'm doing, I'm also... Chief Research Officer for a psychedelic company in the space that's linked to uh, Psydelf, which is Entheotech Bioscience. So I've been working with them a couple of years as their Chief Research Officer, um, I, you know, heading the research aspects of it and um, things around clinical trial development and also developing a psilocybin natural formulation and, and yeah, data collection and running studies on our ketamine clinic. And then outside of that, I also 
<clears throat> make a lot of content um, on Psychedelic Science. I have a YouTube channel and Instagram page called The Psychedelic Scientist, where I describe the research in a way that lay people can understand. And then I also just recently released um, a course I'm co-teaching on psychedelic neuroscience aimed at uh, doctors, therapists, and also lay people in collaboration with a psychedelic media company called Psychedelics Today. And so, so yeah, that's basically me. Got my feet in a few different areas of the psychedelic space, just applying my knowledge of the research literature. And um, yeah, I guess mainly that. <laughs> so question for you, Manesh, what, what made you get into this? Like, I, like what made you get into neuroscience? What made you get into neuroscience and, and researching psychedelics? Like what, what was the underlying thing that, you know, made you come this way? For sure. So, um, a couple of things converged to lead me on this path. Like one, um, was an interest I developed in meditation and kind of, uh, spirituality and consciousness and these kinds of things in my late teens. Um, just a lot of curiosity around states of consciousness and how to develop ourselves and refine our mind and that kind of stuff. I was reading a lot of Zen Buddhism and also yogic philosophy. Um, and then, you know, uh, an experience and obviously having interest in that made me very open to psychedelics. And then uh, when I was like, I think 17, I had a strong, I had a profound psilocybin experience, which really showed me how our reality can be so fundamentally altered so easily, which suggested to me that, you know, Oh, it's like, we just live in this um, reality that's constantly created and that not necessarily isn't necessarily stable and it's malleable. You can take something and radically change how you're perceiving the world. And of course, the only window to the world is your perception of it. So if your perception changes, then reality changes for you. And then you know, I was like, you know, how can we understand how our brain or basically how our experience is created at a greater level and what it, and how exactly are psychedelics perturbing that? And um, that led me to an interest <clears throat> pursuing psychology philosophy neuroscience these kinds of things and then through meeting the right people i got linked to brain imaging in particular as a way to as kind of a scientific way to objectively study these very far out subjective experiences um, by linking it to brain function and um so yeah i think it's like super fucking cool and a fascinating area and so in its infancy and like we're just starting to learn stuff we know very little and i was like here's a perfect thing to hop into and and so yeah and so here i am very 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 cool bro and i i love all the work that you're doing out in san francisco as well dude i had to write it down after we talked because i kept saying the wrong place like i just kept saying like i don't know i'm bad at geography um that's for sure um so like what was that experience like it sounds like you took it you took something you had an experience and that kind of showed you that depending on the way that you view the world is the way that it correlates with you yeah yeah totally so like um when i took it i was at the beach here in vancouver um and it was like a really busy day it was fireworks it was like canada day or something like that and here i was at this beach and i had one friend she also took it and the others in our group didn't take it and i remember sitting there at the beach and it's like you know there's fireworks going on most of the people at this beach are like hammered hollering at the sky you know hollering at the fireworks and i was just like struck by how just absurd this whole situation was i'm like here we are we're a bunch of like you know primates uh primates like a bunch of animals basically here on this beach hollering at lights in the sky 
and we think we're so smart we have it all figured out we have absolutely no clue we're just like flying through space on some rock we just happen to wake up one day and just be like oh fuck i'm a human i'm here on this planet doing this thing and we just take it for granted and live our lives right and i just remember having that insight so deeply and then i was like okay this also applies to me like who is manesh like what what by what law is this manesh operating and acting and i realized it's like acting according to a lot of things i just don't know or understand and i'm just going along with it and it's like okay but then am i separate from manesh like yeah because i'm able to observe him and who am I, you know? And then it's like, and I'm just going there and asking all the questions of, you know, how we, where we identify ourselves to be is just a product of our conditioning in a sense and just the way our brain can function. But you can radically change what you identify with, what vantage point you perceive experience from, and then how you relate to others and interpret your life. And, um, yeah, basically that experience opened me up to all of that. And this is like super fascinating because it's so fundamental to, to our lives and what it means to be human. Very, very cool. Very, 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 very cool. Um, I like what you just said about like, I'm observing Manesh, right? Like a lot of times when I hear my own thoughts, I had a, I had a, a meditation lady one time teach, like say to me, you know, observe your thoughts and then ask yourself who's observing those thoughts. And I was just like, oh, shit, like, yeah, there, there's there's more going on inside than than I think I realized. Do you know what I mean? Or, or more to understand about myself than I than I know. So when you guys are doing these studies in um, fuck, it's San Francisco, right? In California. Yeah. When you're doing these studies, uh, how do you look at the mechanisms uh, like the physical mechanisms of the psychedelic experience, like the underlying the underlying of that? Like, how do you guys look at that? Like. Are, are people taking psilocybin and then going into an MRI? And then if they are, what kind of things are you guys looking for to figure this stuff out? Like, how do you figure this right. out? So, <clears throat> yeah, the, the research that I've been involved in and, and will be at UCSF as well is um, uh, a couple, well, there's two different broad ways to do it. Like one is what you just said, like um, bring them into the lab, um, give them a high dose or medium dose of psilocybin and put them in the fMRI machine which then um, is able to look at brain activity, um, look at the changes in brain activity induced by the psychedelic. And then another way, uh, we also have projects at UCSF where we scan them in the MRI, fMRI, before and after psilocybin to see what changed in their brain. And <clears throat> the ones I'm most interested in are like, you know, when they're under the drug and we're looking at their brain, because I think that's the coolest, right? And there are a variety of ways to study it. Um, so, you know, at the most basic level, we can have them go into the scanner and uh, fill, you know, solve certain cognitive tasks or look at certain videos or stimuli and see how the, their perception of that changes. And then ask them with the questionnaires at the, at the end of it, you know, what was your experience like? Um, and, you know, how much did you experience visual effects versus bodily effects versus mystical effects versus auditory? Uh, versus cognitive changes in thinking, how are your emotional changing, emotions changing, and there's a variety of validated um, questionnaires that are widely used in the research literature, and then we can correlate scores on those psychological questionnaires with changes in their brain activity. And so, generally, that's what research does, something along those lines. 
So just another quick question. So like, let's say, let's say I go and take some psilocybin or you, you check my brain first, right? You see that I could use some improvement <laughs> and then, you know, I go take some psychedelics. I come back, you do another scan. I fill out the questionnaire. Do you guys go and like reconnect with those people later on to see how they're doing too? Yeah, totally. It depends on the study, but a lot of them, yeah, we'll do it. Like we'll touch base with them and scan their brain like a couple of days before the psilocybin, a couple of days after, then we'll have a follow-up at like maybe one month and then again at three months or something like that where we check in with them now i have a question too so i've seen a lot of pictures of like you know this is your brain this is your brain on drugs of course and and going through the rehabs that i went through they've showed me all the like you know that i think it's mris of like brains getting dysfunctional and, and like even breaking down and brains not being fully used especially like with alcohol cocaine and those kind of things what happens in your brain when you take magic mushrooms like or psilocybin? Yeah, the thing with like the thing with psilocybin and also LSD actually and DMT as well, they're not neurotoxic, so they don't damage your brain like these other drugs can. Um, they work on a on a receptor system that um, does not kind of lead to addiction and dependence, the same as these other drugs. And and again, you could take really high doses and they won't be fatal and they won't necessarily damage your brain. But, but the thing is, it can be psychologically traumatizing, which could be just as bad, right? If you do it irresponsibly and take a super high dose. But like physically, like neurophysiologically, they don't damage the brain. So they're quite distinct from, you know, things like cocaine and heroin and, and opioids in general and, um, yeah, a lot of other drugs. Cool, cool. Um, shit, I had another question too and I forgot it. I'm going to jump over to uh, one of Roy's questions. So how do cultural and societal factors influence the use and perception of psychedelics? Right. <laughs> the good question is a big question. I think a major thing about psychedelics is that there's no one psychedelic experience, right? And so you bring your entire worldview into your experience with you. And that's all this, you know, societal norms and beliefs and values you internalize, um, you know, the culture in which you're embedded. All these things will play into the type of experiences you'll have, and then, then as well as uh, how you're going to interpret them. Um, and so, you know, even in early studies, uh, Sam Groff, uh, leading, you know, a pioneering LSD psychiatrist who did thousands of sessions in the 60s and early 70s, you know, he would give high dose LSD to three different people, would say. One of them would be like, oh, I, I merged with Christ. I really, now I truly understand the meaning of Christ's teaching. Um, and then another person will be like, oh, I merged with Brahman, which is the, you know, the Hindu word for the absolute divine reality. Or another one, you know, I danced with Shiva or, or another one, um, I really felt connected to nature and, uh, and mother nature and Gaia, you know, and you can just tell that each of these people are probably in some sense having a similar experience, but how it manifested for them and how they interpreted it was based in their own backgrounds. And so I think, um, and plays a massive role um, in how the psychedelic experience works. Very, very interesting take. I didn't really understand the question and Roy sent it to me. And then when you just explained it there, yeah, I can totally see how, you know, your past can determine where the trip kind of goes and, and, and let some things go even from your past too. Um, question for you. I remembered my old question. When you take psilocybin, does your brain bleed? <laughs> I mean, what do you think, Maddie? What do you think I'm going to say to that? <laughs> Dude, I'm going to say, I'm going to say no, but I know it is a myth out there. You know what I mean? A, Cause like, if it did bleed, I feel like my brain would have bled a lot by now. You know what right. I'm saying? So like, same, same but like why, where did that myth come I from then? Know, it's, it's absurd. It's kind of ridiculous. I mean, 
as I said, like things like psilocybin, also LSD and DMT, they don't harm the brain. They don't, they're not going to make it bleed. They're not going to damage it in really in any way that we've seen so far. And we, there's been a lot of studies in rodents and all sorts of stuff, giving crazy doses to them. And doesn't seem to be any uh, real physical damage to the brain. If anything, these drugs and taking high doses of, of them help repair the brain because they boost neuroplasticity and allow the repair of neural circuits that might have been damaged by other drugs or by stress, um, et cetera. So if anything, they're what we would call neuroprotective. They protect the health of the brain and also promote kind of positive changes um, related to uh, kind of overcoming atrophy and damage. Cool, cool, cool. Um, what's, is there a big difference when taking psilocybin to LSD to DMT? Like, or does it all kind of correlate in the same areas of the brain? Yeah, I mean, there are similarities and differences. I mean, the main difference is that with, with DMT, if you're smoking it, for example, and taking pure DMT, it lasts like 20 minutes. And you can't swallow pure DMT and have it do anything because it's broken down by enzymes in your stomach. And so what ayahuasca is, is DMT um, plus a um, compound that blocks the enzyme that normally breaks down DMT. And then that makes it into a six to eight hour experience. And in that sense, it's quite similar to psilocybin. Um, so like apart from the length, all three of them mainly act through this particular receptor called the serotonin 2A receptor. We know from studies in humans and rodents that if you give a drug that specifically blocks that receptor, you can give someone a ton of psilocybin or LSD or DMT and they won't trip and they won't have, have an experience. Um, suggesting that that receptor is very essential to the effects, but at the same time, um, um, DMT, uh, LSD, and psilocybin also hit other receptors which are distinct. For example, uh, LSD is unique amongst the psychedelics is in that it hits dopamine receptors pretty strongly, whereas psilocybin and DMT barely hit dopamine receptors. And we're unclear on why exactly, or sorry, what exactly that does in terms of the experience. And then another thing is that DMT uniquely activates this receptor called the sigma-1 receptor, which is kind of a more enigmatic receptor, but it's being implicated in things like addiction. Um, and it might be, you know, related to some of the anti-addictive properties of uh, DMT. Um, so, yeah, there are differences, but the similarity, the most important similarity is the serotonin 2A receptor. Okay, cool. So it sounds like they are hitting those same receptors, like no matter what you kind of use. What about like uh, ketamine? Same kind of thing. Like, and let me just be specific on this. Not, not like a microdose of it, but like uh, the intramuscular injection of it. Because like, I think a lot of people think, and there is that, that other myth going around that ketamine is a horse tranquilizer, which it's not right. We've, we've come to learn that it's an actual psychedelic. So are those is ketamine working on those same uh, receptors? I'll fuck it up if I try to say the receptors. <laughs> But the stigma yeah, one. Yeah. Um, well, well, first I want to say that ketamine is, uh, has been used as an anesthetic in humans. It was, why, it was the most used anesthetic in the Vietnam War and was initially approved by the FDA as an anesthetic and um, was widely used for horses and probably still is. I don't know the details on that. So it is those things. But the thing is, it also is a really potent antidepressant when taken in certain dosages, which are sub-anesthetic, which means less than uh, what would induce anesthesia. And there were like tons of, like a lot of clinical trials, um, the top researchers from around the world, including at Yale, who really have shown the efficacy of sub-anesthetic doses of ketamine for depression um, and potentially chronic pain and other, and anxiety disorders as well. 
Um, and the thing with ketamine is it doesn't target the same receptor as the psychedelics, as, you know, psilocybin, DMT, and LSD. But, um, okay, here's, I'm going to get a bit technical on you. So, well, I mentioned, let's say for psilocybin, it works mainly through the serotonin 2A receptor. And something that activating the serotonin 2A receptor does is it increases the levels of another neurotransmitter called glutamate. And glutamate is what mediates boosted neuroplasticity, for example. Um, the thing that ketamine does, instead of activating that serotonin receptor, it activates glutamate directly. And so it stimulates glutamate release to boost neuroplasticity more directly on the glutamate system. So even though ketamine and psilocybin hit different receptors, their later, the later consequences of their effects uh, start to converge and then are similar on boosting glutamate and neuroplasticity. It almost sounds like ketamine is just skipping a step compared to psilocybin then. Like, and it's just going directly to the glutamine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bit more complex, but yes, that's... <laughs> I yes, simplified not, it. That's not, not correct. <laughs> okay, I, I didn't go technical, that's for sure. Um, okay, so I think you've, you've kind of touched on this already, but maybe if you want to touch more on it, because just like maybe re reiterating it, it's, it, one of Roy's questions is, can you discuss the potential risk and benefits of using psychedelics for personal growth and self-exploration? So we kind of touched on um, it, not like you and you taking high doses, there's not that big of a risk, but where the risk kind of lies is within that experience. And if you do have a bad experience or if you come about you start seeing life in a negative way, in a bad way. Is that also possible to go down that route as well? Yeah, I think they're definitely dangerous to using it um, without, you know, being properly careful and respectful of the strength and power of these of these drugs of these substances. I think you know one of them is just doing it. Um, let's say I'll give an example. Let's say you're somebody who's kind of struggling with mental health and. Maybe you don't feel like you have the support around you to help you be your best self and healthiest self. And um, you decide to do some psilocybin alone, alone at home, you know. In that case, you're kind of in a context, in an environment that maybe you associate negatively because you always feel, you often feel bad when you're there. And you don't have anybody around you whose energy can uplift you. And you take a high-dose psychedelic, it's, you know, very possible you'll spiral deeper into that depression and deeper into your mind in those negative places and it might not necessarily be beneficial for you and so that would be an example of someone just not taking proper care of their context at turn because the context the environment people around you and your mindset going in are super um, important for how the experience goes and then but not only that like let's say you're a healthy grounded person and uh, maybe even have support around you etc but you take a psychedelic and now it suddenly shows you all these things about yourself that you don't like, that you would repress your entire life. Um, maybe shows you that you were maybe abused by somebody when you were a kid and you had no idea. You just had this memory come up very vividly. Now you don't know what to do with it and you're distraught and you're disorganized and it destabilizes you. Um, that can also be a main thing, right? And, um, you know, the famous psychiatrist Carl Jung, who's like super you know, genius, a uh, pioneer in a whole variety of ways. And he used to advise against psychedelics because he um, thought they opened up too much of a, a bag of worms, right? They're, he's like, you can already get insights into your unconscious and your deep psyche through other means, through interpreting your dreams, through free association, through all these things. 
Psychedelics is open Pandora's box and most people are unequipped to be able to integrate what's in there. It's just too much. It can be overwhelming and destabilizing. And so that's another real risk too. It's this concept of like unearned wisdom. When you're just thrown with all this knowledge that you just weren't ready to handle, that can also be destabilizing. I can see that too, because like me, myself, I have, um, I have dreams and I'm pretty sure I have a repressed memory of something that happened to me as a child. I've never had it brought up within a, within a treatment or anything like that, but I have like the, uh, attributes of like a sexually abused child, if you will, like my mannerisms and stuff, especially when I was younger. Um, so they, I can totally see like, if that was like, cause I don't know if it's real. Right. I just have had dreams and blah, 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 but I don't have an actual memory of it. I could see how like that kind of information coming into me, like if it happened would really kind of fuck me up for a bit. You know what I mean? So I really do think um, that doing these psychedelics should be done in a controlled setting, especially if you're trying to like better yourself because like, yeah, I do I don't know how I would personally handle that to be honest with you, because like, I know it's, I know it's possible for that repressed memory to come back out and me in a way for me to try to deal with it and relive it. Right. And I've heard a lot of things like with ketamine and people doing treatments like that, where they do relive stuff and kind of go through it. Um, so let's, let's touch on set and setting. What, what would you recommend being the best set and setting? What you ever, what you can recommend, like if you have to recommend, um, like within a clinical setting, um, I get that as well. Um, but I really do think they should be most like most treatments should be done in these clinical settings just to like prevent people from failure, if you will, and just set them up for success. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? Like, I know you just kind of touched on set and setting. Um, yeah. But what are your thoughts on that? Because like, obviously you took psychedelics, not in uh, one of these settings and neither did I, yeah. do you know what I mean? And I got something beneficial from it. So yeah, totally. So I mean, yeah, I don't know how, how to talk about that, but yeah, it's, it's a tricky area. And I think, you know, I, I'm not somebody who would say that nobody should ever do a psychedelic unless they're in a medical context. And sometimes medical context is not the right context for people as well. I think what's important is this um, being well educated on the risks around it and how to ideally prepare for it and make sure you're well supported. Right. So for like, there's no ideal um, setting to be in. It depends on the person. Some people will prefer by the beach or in a forest or in a living room or, um, you know, lying on a couch with eye shades on. Each one will give a different experience and it just depends on what your intention is um, for that experience. But I think in general, what you want to avoid in terms of setting, which is your environment, is number one, things that are unpredictable. Like you're very sensitive when you're under a psychedelic. You don't want some random person who has this weird energy to come in and out that can very much throw you off or, you know, an unexpected events um, where you're suddenly asked to do something where there's some demand placed on you out of nowhere. You definitely don't want, want that. And so you want to have all your ducks in a row and make sure you know who you're going to be interacting with, ideally, especially at higher doses. Obviously, you can't do this in festival settings, which is why you shouldn't take high doses there. But I think in general, if you're doing a high dose session, with the intention to heal or gain insight into yourself, um, then be very careful about what, yeah, what people and environments are um, you're bringing into your experience. And then set, which is your mindset and which encompasses your kind of mental state at the time of the experience, your beliefs, expectations, assumptions, your emotional state. Um, and the research tells us it's best to be in a place where you feel calm, secure, and grounded. 
and uh, comfortable with surrendering. That's very important because psychedelics at higher doses and even lower doses sometimes will really like push your push you in certain directions. And the more you resist and try to hold on, the more difficult it's going to be. And so you have to feel like you're in a context um, and feel internally that, yes, I feel safe. I feel like I can let go of all my day concerns from previous in the day and fully step into this experience and trust it. And so for that, again, being grounded uh, and not having major stresses that are just super that you have to deal with in that moment or that day and just being able to relax into your body, into the experience and let go. I find that super important that you touched on that because a lot of times when I am doing these healing sessions with myself, there is like this inner voice that says to me, let go. Like, do you know what I mean? Like I get this, like, I mean, Pingle's talking about it. I get this inner voice telling me like, just let go. Like this isn't real. Let go. And like, if I fight that, I can feel that I can feel that I can feel that I'm fighting it. But the second I let go or any anxiety or anything that I had automatically goes away. And I sit in this bliss, this blissful moment where there's nothing really happening in my mind. There could be things going on around me, but I'm one with the universe in that moment um, is the way it feels for me. Um, I want to open up the floor to you guys too, just in case you guys have questions based around psychedelics. Uh, Manesh is very, very, very knowledgeable, you guys. So like, if you guys do have questions, please feel free to come up and ask them. Just request to speak. I'll bring you up. There is no people that can't come up here and ask these questions. So please feel free. Um, another thing I wanted to ask about, since we were talking about some of the dangers, um, when I was in high school, I was taught that when you take mushrooms, imagine there's a line in your brain, right? And when you take psilocybin or you take these psychedelics, there's a line in your brain that above that line is reality and above it is imagination, if you will. And what I was taught was that that line kind of breaks and allows your reality and imagination to kind of like go into each other and allow you to kind of trip. Right. Mm. I was also told back then, and I'm just curious that it, when that line, if you break that line enough, it's a possibility that that line can stay broken and you can go into schizophrenia. Is that true? Right. That's, that's an interesting way they framed it. I mean, it's not <clears throat> the whole concept of our imagination blending with our perception. Uh, it's not far off from how scientists view some of the effects now. So that is, it's interesting they frame it that way. Um, in terms of it, like potentially going into schizophrenia, there's, there's no evidence that if you were never going to develop schizophrenia in your life, that it makes you develop it. Like that doesn't happen. Um, and even in the case of people who, you know, in their family have a history of schizophrenia, um, it's still not like 100% that you're just going to develop it. It's actually quite low statistically as well. Um, but I think, but it can be the case that you go into, if you, especially if you use it irresponsibly, they can go into temporary states that it might, might be resembling schizophrenia, uh, where you feel like you're actually going crazy. That is possible. Again, speaks to the dangers and risks of taking high doses and not being properly prepared. But I mean, I think, you know, your everyday person who nobody in their family has developed it before, you've no reason to suspect that you're going to develop it. I think it's an overblown fear that somehow you're just going to go permanently into a psychotic episode like that. Again, statistically in literature and all these kinds of things, um, especially back in the, in the 60s and 70s even, it was so blown out of proportion as part of a whole anti-drug media campaign. Um, and so there are risks. You can't go there temporarily and some people can uh, definitely go into 
that kind of an experience um, in a prolonged way if they're predisposed. But um, I think I personally don't think it's as common as people think. Is it more common with marijuana? Yeah, interesting. I, I think uh, it's hard to say. I think it depends on dose with a psychedelic. Obviously, taking a high dose of psilocybin is very different and more powerful than just smoking a joint or something like that. Um, I mean, although if you eat an edible, it can get very psychedelic. If you take if you high, high THC edibles, can really take you places um, and places that resemble schizophrenia for sure. Um, it's hard to say. It's hard to say because so many more people have smoked weed than done mushroom, right? And people do it so casually. Um, so it's hard to draw comparisons. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I was just looking at some questions in our Discord from the chat, and one of them was, um, "How come I can go? <laughs> how I can answer this if you don't want to, Kumanish? Uh, how can how come I can go into a head shop and buy mushrooms right now?" Right. It's funny. It's it's kind of kind of crazy. It's like uh, I know here in Vancouver, even before um, cannabis was you know legalized, there was dispensaries everywhere and somehow they operate in a legal gray zone or actually no they're illegal they're straight up illegal they're just very low enforcement priority usually and so they're able to get by unless they unless some bad shit goes down and they have they've cops have a reason to bust them and so i think it's kind of like that right now these shops are just very blatantly selling illegal drugs um not just psilocybin they have some of these stores are selling uh, dmt and lsd and also mdma in some cases and just like straight up on the storefront selling it and, and not trying to hide it. But I think it's just the, you know, it's just um, low enforcement priority. I guess it's a lot of headache and paperwork for them to actually bust one of these places. And so if they're not causing any harm visibly, then they just kind of cast a blind eye, at least for now, at least. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like they don't care, especially what it seems like in Canada. Do you know what I mean? And like, dude, funny story. When we were flying, when I first met you, when I flew out to Miami to meet you, um, I was on the plane, I was talking to this girl and this girl showed me like, yeah, I can buy mushrooms in Toronto. Cause that's where we were. And so she shows me and they did a post on Twitter or Instagram or something, this company, they're like, we're selling mushrooms, come get them. And within like, it got on the news and then within like three hours, the cops showed up and raided them, but they were still like, they were still operational. Like they were, they didn't close down or anything like that. So I do think it is a little bit more lenient where I get concerned is like, if I was to go in, into a head shop, buy some mushrooms, like a chocolate bar or something where I get a little bit like iffy about it is how much is actually in this chocolate bar, right? Cause it's not tested. It's just somebody making it some product getting made. Right. And let's say I take like, it's like, let's say it's a 3.5, like a 3.5 chocolate bar. Right. And I take one little square. My fear is that I'm going to take the whole dose in that one little square or even more because it wasn't properly made. Totally. So like, that's, that's kind of where my fear comes in. Cause I'll go to take a microdose or something. And next thing you know, I can't do anything, but trip out and talk to the elves. You know what I mean? So like, I think, I think that we do need regulation for it, but at the same time, like just me personally, I don't really see there being that big of a risk. If you're, if you're safe and educated and um, all that kind of stuff, I see fun girl came up to ask you a question, Manesh. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to give her the mic and let her ask you. Hi. Um, it's so nice. I'm like, you know, hearing you talk um, like with all these big words <laughs> and so professionally about psychedelics. Um, but I'm fun girl. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of going back to like, um, you know, bad times and settings and things like that. Um, I 
every time I like partake um, and like use psilocybin um, in high dosages, I get like severe cases of the yawns. I know it's very common and everything, um, but I tend to be a hypochondriac and overthink things. So when that's happening, sometimes that does throw me into a panic and like a bad headspace when I can't make them stop. Um, so I was just wondering if you know anything about that. I've heard like three different things. I was talking about it yesterday. Um, I've heard that um, you know, it's like something to do with like the oxygen um, to your brain. Um, I've heard that it's like a communal thing. And then like, I also heard that it's like a form of purging if in a spiritual sense. Um, so I, I, I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, yeah, it's super interesting. I know for myself too, when I take psilocybin, I almost like hurt my jaw from yawning so hard, but I have to like hold it in. Um, it, it, you know, the short answer is we don't really know, right? But I think um, one possibility is that it's linked to the serotonin system actually um the levels of different neurotransmitters in our brain because um serotonin is actually involved in a lot of processes uh in our physiology related to muscle contractions um digestion um also it's related to sleep in certain ways and a variety of other uh, physiological processes in our body so by modulating the system the psychedelics, they, don't really, they hit basically all serotonin receptors to some degree. And so they're changing serotonin activity throughout the brain and body. And the idea is uh, maybe a subset of those uh, affect our yawning response, which uh, usually, you know, I guess signals that we're tired or going to sleep or other changes in the nature of oxygen around us. But I think it's just stimulating these responses um, in the absence of, you know, what would usually stimulate them. Um, so I think that could potentially be part of it. Um, the other could also, I think it's very much linked to also relaxation because serotonin is very much involved in relaxation. So that would be the argument there. Um, and also, I mean, hmm, it could be due to changes in uh, kind of changes in blood oxygen as well. But um, again, we don't really know. It's, it's, it's pure speculation at this point. But my hunch would be it's something to do with changing the serotonin system in the in the brain and body. Yeah, I, I definitely am a tired person. I don't get enough sleep. But um, yeah, if you guys could do a lot more research about that. I would love to know. Because like I said, it's just like, you know, when you can't stop something from happening and it just keeps on happening. And then, of course, you know, your mind goes to all these things that you Google and everything like that. Um, it can kind of like, you know, put you in a bad headspace. But um, I do thank you for that. But yeah, like going back to like um, the set and setting and um, also like um, the, um, the lines between like imagination and reality. I've actually had that happen um, from like doing um from microdosing consistently and like you know i would take like breaks and then maybe like do like a higher dose um and everything um i've actually had that happen where like i almost kind of felt like i was like losing my mind a bit and i just like stopped entirely and was like okay i got a ground you know and things like that um and it's been a couple years since i've actually like you know partaked in um you know like sitting with like um psilocybin and everything so I would like to like hop back into it when I'm like physically able right now. I'm like breastfeeding and all that kind of stuff. But um, what would you recommend that I 
do that again, even if I had like, you know, those paranoia thoughts when completely like in a sober mind and everything. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, well, first I have to say that I, I don't condone the use of illegal drugs. <laughs> um, but if you were to, to try it, I, I mean, I think it's always better to be careful, you know, especially if you had experiences like that before. Be If you're going to try it, um, start at the low, low end and slowly work your way up and always make sure you do it in a place um, with somebody else present where you feel safe with all the sentence setting stuff I talked about earlier. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, this is my personal opinion because I feel like I, I will, if I were in your position, I would not just never do it again out of fear. I don't like to let fear rule my life. And it's kind of like how to do it. If I want to, if it's something important that I can feel like I would get value from, I would find a way to do it. And I think the way to do it in this case, again, is just really slowly work your way up in doses, starting low and making sure you're well supported. Heck yeah. Yeah. Lynn, like, you know, um, I, I don't want to let fear control me either and everything, but that has always been like kind of a thought. Um, and it wasn't like necessarily like super bad paranoia, but like, you know, just feeling like different, like, you know, um, what I would call like energies and things like that. Um, and just like, you know, can't shake it kind of stuff where, you know, that kind of stuff like bothers me because in a sense it is kind of like a form of schizophrenia. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, that that's definitely good advice. I thank you for that. <laughs> for sure. And I want to say as well, like the thing with any experience, especially psychedelics is always to realize you are not your experience, right? You, you just, just to view it with a sense of almost detachment and curiosity. It's like, Oh, these weird paranoid thoughts are coming again. Oh, here they are again. So interesting. Well, you know, and just observing and allowing them as soon as you think to yourself, Oh, paranoid thoughts, these are bad. I must push them away. That's just going to make them stronger. Right. So it's like, uh, making space for them, accepting and acknowledging them without judging them as best as you can and just letting them flow through you because maybe that's this energy that's inside of you that needs to be released. You just got to let it do its thing when it comes up. Um, also, yeah, really a possibility. Mash, I know you've talked to elves and things like that. <laughs> so I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on this and experiences. <laughs> I've had some weird experiences that I can't explain. Yo, Manesh, you ever have anybody um, go back in time or lose track of time to the point where they thought like, I'll give you an example. Uh, I looked at the clock. The clock was 2 p.m. I jumped in a bath. I looked at the clock again. Clock was 4 p.m. Water was still hot, which was weird. Looked back at the clock and it was 2 p.m. Now, did I just trip out and see the wrong thing or did I time travel? <laughs> That's the question, right? Like, who knows? It, probably you're tripping out and you saw the wrong thing. But I, I've had um, things like that happen before. Like, for example, where um, I was like, I had a little fun mushroom trip with my little cousin, my little brother, and we're watching The Hobbit. <laughs> and and um, all of a sudden, I get, like the... Um, the same scene was looping over and over again, and the voices were going high pitch, low pitch, faster, slower, and just looping. And we're like, "How is this even possible right now?" And and so there, I don't know, some very uh, bizarre things that can happen um, where you feel like time is not following the usual linear way it does. And um, what's that all about? Who knows? Like, uh, yeah, it's it's easy to maybe dismissively say like, "Oh, it's altering your perception of time, and you're losing." um sense of you're just you're just tripping so you don't really know what's going on um but it seems to be far out in some of the things that can happen 
and I like to remain, you know, with a completely open mind. Like, who knows if uh, if we assume, for example, that all events that will ever happen have already happened, and we're just moving through them, uh, which you know is a defensible position, uh, you know, scientifically with certain interpretations of physics and so on. Then maybe you're just your consciousness is moving forward and back in that plane of time in these, you know. Uh, but who knows? Like, really, like, who knows? I like to be totally open. Yeah, me too, because it makes it really interesting, too, because, like, there is no, there's no way to prove it. Do you, exactly. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, there's really, there's really no way to prove it, but it's, it's, it feels real. Like, it feels what's happening is, like, super, super real. Um, so, we have about 15 minutes left of the space, you guys. If anyone does have questions for Manesh, uh, based around psychedelics, neuroscience, anything like that, please come up. I do have a few more questions that I am going to touch on, but you guys are both free to come up. So, we touched on microdosing a little bit. Um, what are the recommendations from the studies right now on how to microdose? So, with the studies that are out there currently, what dose, how often, and what is like recommended from those things? If you're allowed to, I don't know if you're allowed to say that. That's why I keep saying the studies. Right. Well, if you talk about the studies, a lot of them, um, and this is a whole topic, you know, uh, kind of say that microdosing is mainly or completely just placebo effect in people's expectation and not actual those low doses of psilocybin doing anything. Um, so like, yeah, that's the buzzkill kind of consensus so far, but there needs to be more research and there's a lot of limitations and that's a whole other topic. But I mean, the research to date has actually um, suggested, if we read it directly, that LSD might be more, might be better uh, to, to, to microdose for its cognitive uh, and mood related effects. Like, you know, boosting mood and also increasing attention. And um, I believe it was in the range of, I want to say 10 micrograms um, that people were doing uh, in that study. And they found the benefits. And I believe they were doing it on a schedule of every second day or something like this. Um, so, like, you know, I personally uh, would think that, yeah, microdosing is in the range of 5 to 12, maybe micrograms of LSD, um, uh, like maybe, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday or something would be the way to go and what's supported by the research so far. Uh, yeah. And, and the way, the way to measure out that kind of, you might be wondering how the hell do I measure out five to 12 micrograms if I have these tabs or whatever is, uh, usually to dissolve it in distilled water where, you know, the ratio, ratio of milliliters to LSD and then just measure it out in like little you know, like measure out five milliliters of water or whatever it is um, after letting it dissolve and sit so it diffuses throughout the water. Cool, cool. The way that I've, me personally, that I've found that works best for me is when I'm microdosing, I do it. Um, so I've heard of like the three day method where you do a microdose every three days. When I was first doing research into them, like way back, even before we met, even before Sidel was a thing, one of the things that I read was um, five days in a row 
but you switch up the doses. So like, let's say for instance, a point one on Monday, point two on Tuesday, point one on Wednesday. And what I noticed is, and I think this is just because I have ADHD though, Manesh, cause I know a lot of my, cause my ADHD is so severe that it, it leads off into other things. So I can become depressed because I take on too many tasks. I can become really overwhelmed and have anxiety because my brain is going so fat, like those kind of things. And what I noticed is when I did the, the one day, next day, one day, and then took the three day off to give my, my cerebral reset. Um, I found that was the most beneficial for me personally. Um, when I've done experiments on the three days, I feel like it's something's going on, but not like that full kind of uh, uplift. But I really don't think it's a placebo effect because I'm, I'm taking such a small, such a small dose to the point where I can't feel it. But I'm doing things that I wouldn't normally be doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I it's not like uh, it's not like a, oh I took mushrooms so now I can go do that. Like, so for instance, when I was a heroin, when I was into heroin, I needed heroin to go do these things. Like, I needed heroin to get out of bed. I needed heroin to go to work. I need like all of this kind of stuff. Um, but with the mushrooms, I don't feel like I need it. But what I feel like is it puts my brain in a spot where I care so much about myself that I just want to take better care of myself. And I feel like it slows down my mind enough to correlate my thoughts and not have them branch off into five different directions at the same time. Right. I mean, that's great. And I think, I mean, I can respond to that, but I don't want to because I think it's wonderful you having those effects. And I don't want to try to tell you that. Don't ruin it for me. Exactly. (laughs) But I think ultimately, as you're saying, you know, your own everyone everyone's different and there's no catch-all that's going to work for everybody and that it's the same with most things so i think experimenting and finding what works for you the best is is the way to go what are your thoughts on because like you know i really believe that mushrooms is going to go the same way the same route that marijuana went right where it's going to be prescribed first and then after it's been prescribed which we're already seeing here in canada for psilocybin um then it'll go to recreational. Now, do you think that we're probably like, what do you think for a timeline that we're out? And obviously this isn't like accurate. Just, I'm just curious of your thoughts before, or will it go recreational or will they just keep it more medical? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think um, the current trajectory is that psilocybin will be available for depression by 2027. Um, and that'll be, you have to, you get prescribed by, a, you know, your GP or a psychiatrist and you go to a clinic uh, or some kind of center and do it there under the supervision of trained guides, right? And I think if that is carried out for, let's say, five years and there's a lot of safety data um, collected and uh, best practices and also just knowledge and education around psilocybin and psychedelics is much more mainstream, is everywhere. I do think you know, sometime in maybe the early 2030s, that it's possible that things will be eased. Or actually, you know what? Uh, there's a difference. Between, I think decrim is going to happen first, right? I think as things become available in medical settings, they're going to become decriminalized for use outside of that. But like full legalization, I think that'll be uh, another decade, probably at least uh, until then. But I think before then, by I'm sure 2030, you know, it'd probably be decriminalized across Canada and it already is in several states in the U.S., right? I think it's going to be more and more. Yeah, and I, I feel like I feel like psychedelic therapies almost market themselves. 
Do you know what I mean? Like if you have an experience on one of these psychedelic things and it changes your life, it's almost like, you know, like somebody that starts going to the gym and it starts to change their life and people see the results, people see the change. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. I hope it doesn't take a decade, bro. But I mean, if it takes a decade, we'll, we'll make it to the decade. But um, I definitely think it'll go the route that you just said. Yeah, totally. It's only a matter of time. And yeah, the, for the speed at which it happens will depend on how the rollout goes when it becomes available and just how the industry goes over the next yeah five years. It sounds like we need a lot more data before that'll happen, before they'll give us the, like, the green check mark before they're in like actual head shops without being illegal, right? Totally. A lot more, especially real, real world data like outside of the clinical trials. Has there been any reports of bad things that have happened with psilocybin like in the media or anything that you've noticed or seen or anything like that because that's kind of my fear too right somebody goes and takes mushrooms and jumps off a fucking building or something and then we're back another five years right so like yeah i really hope people are being very very careful when doing this yeah i haven't seen anything come out uh in recent times about that and i think you know at this point i would hope that the momentum is strong enough you know with you know, Netflix documentaries and mainstream coverage and Will Smith saying to the ayahuasca that, um, that the NFL player, uh, what is his name? What's his name? Aaron Rodgers or whatever doing ayahuasca. And like, there's enough momentum suggesting that there's potential here that I don't think one terrible experience is going to derail at all. Obviously it won't help, but I do think we're slowly creating enough momentum and power behind the potential of them in this kind of mental health context that one crazy person is people are thinking like, Oh, everyone's doing that because it's, it's not the case. I, I totally agree. Words you came up. If you have a question here, I just want to touch on one thing before we jump into you. Um, actually, you know what words we're going to jump into you. Cause I forgot the question. Go right ahead. No, it's all good. I completely understand. I do it all the time. Uh, it's been a great space. Manesh, it's been great listening to you and you had great information. Appreciate you coming up here and, and uh, being available for us to ask questions of, um, since we were gotcha. talking about uh, the possibility of, you know, like psilocybin being legalized and being, you know, purchasable in head shops across America. Like, I know there's been plenty of studies done recently put out about microdosing and, and its benefits, but has there been any mainstream studies that are covering the benefits or at least the effects of uh like regular macro dosing for because it's going to happen there's going to be people that do it i mean even now um i mean i was one of those people that macro dosed several times um you know a quarter uh for a long period of time you know in my youth i'm not that old so that's an interesting way to put that but um like has there been any studies regarding that yeah totally in fact there's been much more research on macro dosing than micro dosing and, uh, you know, it's been several pretty big clinical trials, like very rigorously looking at psilocybin for depression, for example. And they give uh, the equivalent of around, you know, anywhere from three to uh, four and a half grams of dried mushrooms of like golden teachers uh, of a standard kind of strain that people get. And showing that how it can be effective, again, when used uh, with the right preparation and in, you know, controlled contexts or each, these contexts that are, curated to you know support the experience and so yeah there's a lot of research with uh, psilocybin also like ayahuasca and even lsd is there's a cool clinical trial recently using lsd for alcohol 
uh, you know, use disorder, as they call it, just for alcoholics to help overcome their alcohol addiction and showing that's effective for that. And also LSD for anxiety disorders a little while ago. And yeah, psilocybin for depression, for end-of-life anxiety and cancer patients, for tobacco addiction. Um, recently, we started looking at it for anorexia as well. And these are all macrodose studies. There's, there's been no study. It actually hasn't been a study on microdosing for depression with psilocybin. That actually hasn't been done. A lot of people assume it has, but actually it hasn't. Very, very cool. I love all the knowledge. Um, where do you want to keep going? You can, you can keep going if you want. If you want to respond, I to that. just wanted to say thanks because yeah, that was my impression. Um, especially with like recent headlines and whatnot, the the focus seems to have been mainly on microdosing, at least in like mainstream headlines. Um, but uh, no, that's you're absolutely right. I appreciate the redirect, and uh, you, I yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Cool, man. Yeah, my pleasure. And yeah, it's so interesting how the media skews what the research actually is by this choosing what people want to hear, right? Or what will grab the most clicks and, and that, yeah, without it re actually reflecting what the research is actually doing and telling us. I also find it very interesting how many people actually take psychedelics, but don't tell people that they're taking psychedelics. So one thing that I've, I've noticed through the travels of side of is, you know, when you walk up to somebody and they say, what do you do? Nah, I work with magic mushrooms and you go into it. A lot of people will say to me, I don't know if I should say this. And I'm like, what? You take psilocybin? You take like LSD, like DMT? Like, what is it? It's not a big deal. Like you talk to aliens yet? Like I, I didn't like, but they, like there's so much more disturb, like stigmatization that needs to happen. Cause I, I feel like there's a lot of people that are using this medicine, but just aren't willing to say it yet. Yeah, totally. And I think more, more and more people are coming out of the psychedelic closet, right? With celebrities leading the way. So it's, it's happening. It's really, really cool. It's interesting too. Cause like, um, my auntie, she has a, oh, I don't know if it's a neurological disorder or something, but her hand shakes like to the right. She's, it, it can't help it. And when she, um, takes CBD and small doses of psilocybin, she doesn't have that happen. And she's, she's been totally against drug use my whole life because of my past. And so it was really interesting to, uh, you know, have her ask me if I can bring a small dose to her and, and have her try it for that reason. And just seeing how it helped her. It, it's quite amazing. Like, I, I'm really, really bullish on what it can do. Uh, Roberto, I got time for one more question for Manesh, if you want, before we have to close down this space. Would you like to ask Manesh a question? Yes. Uh, what kind of questions uh, do you ask the people during these studies when, whenever you go into the exam room or... And also, what's the most profound um, uh, message you've gotten from the psychedelic experience? Right. Totally. So in terms of the questions we ask people, um, we actually ask a whole, whole bunch, like a lot of different questionnaires that have been designed by scientists in which different research groups use. Usually, you can separate them into a few different ones. So like one is like, what was your experience like? Was it, I kind of mentioned this before, or... You know, did you have psychological insights? Did you work through difficult emotions and memories? Did you feel like you were one with the entire universe and had mystical experiences? Did you have a lot of crazy visuals? Um, did you relive memories or did you just see shapes? Um, you know, did you feel like your body was located somewhere else? There's a whole variety of questions we can ask about the experience itself. And then in terms of after, we ask them, give them questions about depression symptoms anxiety symptoms, um, well, whether their satisfaction with their life has improved, whether they feel closer to other people, um, and, and just a whole variety of things. 
And so we really try to be comprehensive in getting the whole person and all the aspects of your experience with their questionnaires. Um, and then for me, something that I've taken away from these experiences is kind of what I was saying before, just, um, you know, the idea that our life is just a big dance we're doing. It's a, it's, it's, it's play. We're just playing, you know, and it's like having fun and enjoying it and having a bit of life lightness in relation to our own identifications, our own mind, our own thoughts and emotions and seeing everything from a place of curiosity, openness and acceptance rather than, you know, making it so heavy and important and, oh, I'm having this thought. This means, means I'm a bad person. It means I have to take this thought seriously. It's like, no, like, oh, a thought came up. Interesting. It's saying this. Oh, cool. <laughs> you know, and it's like these insights come through meditation practice as well, but I think psychedelics can really just throw it in your face of how uh, heavy we make life so in a, such an unnecessary way and how easy and light it can be by just changing our relationship to our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. You know, again, by accepting and letting them be without strongly pushing them away or grabbing onto them. Yeah, Roberto's given the heart. He enjoyed the answer. I can tell. Fun girl, you have one more question? Yeah. Um, so we have Crawdaddy in the audience, and I know um, we're about to like wrap it up and everything, but he's very adamant that you check out his question in the replies. Um, the, apparently, he wants it answered, so I didn't know if you could okay. see Oh, no, Crawdaddy. I'll get to it, right? Is it in uh, Discord? Did he put it in Discord? Um, oh, thumbs see. up to this. Okay, you guys see it? Awesome. I just didn't want his question to go over it. Look, no, no, thank you. I love Crawdaddy. Big ups to Crawdaddy. What's up, buddy? We got to jump in a call again. But yeah, sorry. If you can see it, Manesh, go ahead. Yeah, it says, has there been any, been any research with the correlation between people doing psychedelics together and their lasting relationships? Um, an interesting question. There, there hasn't been um, with psilocybin, but they're actually, uh, I believe they looked at it with MDMA. So we haven't talked about MDMA here because it's a bit different. Um, but it is often grouped into a similar category as the psychedelics. Um, but for example, in the 80s, it was widely used for couples therapy and with a lot of success, right? And before it was made illegal in 1985. Um, and now it's coming back for its uh, you know, ability to help treat PTSD. And there was one study. Um, so there was these massive studies looking at MDMA for PTSD. And they also asked these people on how the MDMA experiences uh, affected relationships. And, um, and as you might expect, it really helped uh, it affect relationships in a positive way and help them feel closer, help them develop more empathy uh, for each other and to, to deepen their communication. And so I think there is a lot of potential uh, for these contexts. And we're, you know, I think as soon as we start moving past this hyper-medicalized view, right? Because like, it, it's yet to be the case that psychiatrists look at, you know, relationship conflict as a disorder that needs to be treated, right? Um, and it's unfortunate that these drugs are only framed in the context of treating disorders when they, you know, do all these other things such as help people grow in their relationships and deepen their, you know, intimacy and connection with their partner. Because um, psychedelics do put you in a very vulnerable and open space where deep things come up, things you usually don't even say to yourself. And if you're doing it with somebody you trust and you share it with them, that can really create connection and break down barriers. And so although there's very little research except with MDMA, a little bit with MDMA, I do think in the next five years or so, we're going to see more of that. It's interesting. Um, 
There's so much going on in this space. Like it's crazy. Crawdaddy, did that answer your question? You can always come up and ask too, bro, but I think you're at work. If I know, if I remember your schedule correctly. Yeah. Um, so I did pin something up at the top, Manesh. So I pinned up the, the link that you posted in Discord for your courses to learn more about um, the psychedelic, sorry, the psychedelic neuroscience. Oh my God, demystified that link. I posted up at the top. Do you want to talk quickly about that and just let people know a little bit more about what you're doing with that and how they can learn more if they want to get involved with that? For sure. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so, I mean, as I mentioned, something I do is uh, create content around psychedelic, like psychedelic science in general, as well as neuroscience. And I do this through my Instagram um, and also YouTube channel, both called The Psychedelic Scientist. And this link that Masha or Maddie uh, put up there is um, a course that I, it's, an, it's a comprehensive eight-week course with about 10 hours of recorded content and an hour and a half live session with me and my co-teacher, who's also a neuroscientist. Um, every week for eight weeks and so this cohort has already started and so we're on week two um, but we will definitely be running it multiple times in the future and so if you want a comprehensive overview of psychedelic neuroscience and it's like good for people with very little scientific background uh, as well um, then check out that link and you can get on the waiting list for the next round which will be happening in probably about two months I'm excited. I'm going to have to sign up so I can learn more maybe I can replace you or get a job at San, in San Francisco with you huh? I could learn. Right. No, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I believe in you. <laughs> well, thanks. I believe in you too, Manish. I believe in all of you. Um, so with that, you guys, we are coming to a close now. Uh, I do want to thank you, Manish, for coming out and sharing your knowledge and spending time with us, because as we know, as human beings, time is our most valuable thing that we have. Um, so I do want to thank you for spending that with me and with our community. Um, you guys, we do have more spaces with Manesh coming up. Um, and we actually have some other doctors that it's, it, Manesh, like, I don't think you know this, but like you're, you're sought after in the psychedelic space. Like I bring your name up, bro. And people are like, Oh, I want to pick his brain. Like, so we actually have Dr. Michelle Wiener coming up to join you. I think I have to double check on the date, but I think it's next week or two weeks from now. Yeah. First week of June, I believe it was. First week of June. Yeah. 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 So they, they will both be up here and they'll both be talking and communicating. So it's going to be really interesting because we're going to have pretty much one neuroscientist and academy uh, doctor talking to another neuroscientist and it, it should get really, really interesting you guys. So I'll make sure you got to keep you guys updated on that. And if you guys do have any questions for Manesh that weren't covered or you think of something later with inside Al's discord, there's a chat called the psychedelic scientists. You can find all the information on Manesh in there and you can also directly ask him questions. So if you want to try to ask something that you're not really sure, you can just come in there, ask a question. And when he's got free time, he comes in there and answers all of our questions for us. So once again, Manesh, yo, are you going to Denver? Yeah, man, I'll be there. Nice. Okay, cool. So some alpha for side of you guys, since we are, I am on the side of page is we're going to be going to Denver, June 19th, June 23rd for one of the biggest psychedelic conferences uh, in North America called psychedelic scientist hosted by maps maps, Canada. So we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're just working on getting everything lined up. Um, so if you guys are going to be in Denver around that time, come out, come meet us IRL, meet some people. We've got lots of connections. So if you want to learn, It'll be super, super cool. And dude, I didn't know you were going, so I'm excited to see you again. 
For sure. Yeah, it'll be a great time. And yeah, totally my pleasure to come hang out. Thank you everyone for the great questions. Thank you, Manesh. And with that, you guys, we're going to end it. Like I said, if you do have more questions, join the Tide Out Discord. Link is in the bio. And I hope you guys all have a wonderful, lovely Tuesday. Make sure you guys touch some grass and tell someone that you love them. With that, you guys, love you all. And I'm closing out the space. Thanks again, Manesh. Appreciate it. And thank you, everybody who came up and asked questions, too, because that's what Manesh is here for, right? So really, really appreciative. And shout out to everybody that showed up. Much love, guys. Peace, Manesh. Peace. Thanks for checking out another episode of The Ether. That was The Psychedelic Scientist, hosted by Psydelve, recorded on Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. For TerraSpaces.org, I'm Finn. Thanks for listening. And if you want to keep listening, head on over to TerraSpaces.org slash donate and show some support. Sneaking through back alleys on a little cosplay, Broadway all day, looking like the wrong way. Resuscitating major players in the waiting room, sifting through the paperwork while I be debating fools. Breaking rules, breaking bad, like we always wait for doom. Slayed a few in my early years, often hit the shroom. Sitting in the dark, waiting for the daily news to let us know what we should believe as the latest truth. Stay aloof, writing rhymes in the studio, trying to keep it well lit like filming a movie role. Sorting through support from your endorsements, of course, we're tripping balls, handed reports in. The latest proof ain't a way to move, change the view Just a bunch of pack of heads living in a chicken coop Picking at the dinner, finger licking like the plate is good So kick it for a minute, then show me what that thing could do Two plus two Show me what that thing could do Two plus two Show me what that thing could do Two plus two Show me what that thing could do Two plus two Big thinking energy always gets the best of me When I kick it in the lab, messing with new recipes Gotta mix and match, flip the latch, letting rhythm scratch Dope shit, spitting facts with my vision smash Big trip aristocrats, dishing out a list of trash Missing wisdom, this fish is too big to catch Better let the missus know where you hit the stash Watch your next step, bro, before you hit the traps Walking on eggshells, tripping over landmines And I'm about done dealing with these damn lies Man, I'm looking at this planet like a franchise Chastised into digging holes in the back nine the latest proof ain't a way to move, change the view Just a bunch of peck of heads living in a chicken coop Picking at the dinner finger, licking like the plate is good So kick it for a minute, then show me what that thing could do Two plus two Show me what that thing could do Two plus two Show me what that thing could do Two plus two Show me what that thing could do Two plus two Spaces.